Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Welcome to Harvest. I'm glad you're here. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I hope it was a meaningful, hopefully a little bit restful time for you. I appreciated what Eugene said in the beginning about just needing to make a little time around this time of the year. And I understand for many of you, the circumstances of your life will not allow the slowing down and the resting. You got to fight for it. How many of you went Black Friday shopping? Don't be ashamed. Just raise. Okay, so you understand what fighting to get something you want is about. I mean, you've got to put up with a lot of junk to go Black Friday shopping. If you're willing to fight that hard for a bargain, I'm going to encourage you to fight that hard for a moment of quiet, of peace, of space, to actually think about how much we have to be grateful for, what we are anticipating as Christmas quickly rolls around the corner, and what that means for us. Uh, We've been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John, and this morning, I tried for a little bit more of a um, clever title than The Woman Caught in Adultery, because I don't really like that title. I feel like that places the focus on the wrong group in the story. And uh, and so I I want to preach a message called Pride and Prejudice, Uh, Nothing to do with the novel, but it has to do with the condition of the human heart that leads one person to treat another person in a way that is really not reflective of the heart of God. But also, I want to put some attention later on to the person at the center of all of this, the woman at the center, and the Savior that she meets. The text this morning comes from John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, I want to read that with you. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. 
I think it would be irresponsible if I didn't mention just at the start that there is some question about um, whether this text that we just read was legitimately a part of the original gospel that John wrote or was, in fact, inserted later by a scribe. But most, if not all, scholars agree there's no reason to doubt that the events recorded here actually happened, were part of the ministry and life of Jesus, and that they capture for us a very important picture, a beautiful picture, of the heart and the beliefs of Jesus, our Savior. I will write a recap this week on the message, and I will include a little bit more detail on that aspect of it, the textual difficulties with this particular passage. But I'm going to jump right in because I think this passage really typifies the gospel as Jesus wanted us to understand it. Now, the setting, and I'm going to try to move through this text using a story told in pictures. I was blessed to find on the magical internet a series of pictures from this account that show the unfolding story. I don't know if these were screen grabs from a movie or I'm not sure what they were, but I'm just happy that I found them. And I want to set the setting a little bit. Jesus, we find him in the outer courts of the temple. And it says that he was teaching the people. This was very common. The outer courts of the temple were often used for religious leaders to gather their disciples and just talk to them, opening up what the scriptures meant. That's the way people have always learned faith, was that one person took the time and spent the energy unpacking what God had said and what God was doing for others. And because it was a public space, you couldn't really control who walked in and out among you. And so it was common when people saw a very well-known teacher who stood for a certain position or school of thought that their detractors and critics would often approach them very publicly and challenge them with a question or try to stump them and engage in dialogue. That was very common. It still happens today. It's called the Internet. And people are doing this all the time. Uh, It's still happening to this day. And so Jesus is teaching when all of a sudden there's a commotion, and it says that the teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman, and I don't imagine she was coming willingly. They were dragging this woman in. And what they say as they thrust her into the middle of this circle is here's a woman caught literally, I don't even want to imagine what exact. I don't even know how you catch someone right in the act without completely violating some private space, but they caught her literally in the act of adultery and threw her in the middle. Now, there's a couple problems with this unfolding scene, and this is a graphic depiction of it. They just literally just threw her out there, and so that's the first problem. I don't think the woman's guilt is really at issue here or even in question, partly because I don't think these religious leaders would have risked their reputations on a false charge that could very easily be disproven in public, but also because Jesus later affirms that the woman had an issue that had to be dealt with. He doesn't erase the truth of what she did or what she was caught in doing, but there's a huge problem with the way this whole scenario unfolds. The first was just the way they were going about it, They were bringing this woman in in a way that was so dehumanizing. They presented her to Jesus in a manner that was designed to strip her of her dignity and her humanity. She was no longer a person now. She was a prop. She was reduced 
to a choice, an act, a label. She was a visual object lesson, a jumping off point for a point they were trying to make, which wasn't even truly theological, it was actually political. This is a human being, regardless of what she had done or failed to do, the way she was brought in and used for this engagement really does not reflect anything of the way God sees and feels and thinks about people. Now, before we condemn these religious leaders too quickly, I want you to know that we all do the exact same thing all the time. We do it way more than we want to admit. I want you to think about the last person who seriously offended you. The kind of person who made you think, how can you be a human being and believe what you believe? Do what you do. Say what you just said. How could you think that way and want to be treated like one of us in the human race? Think about the last person who truly annoyed you, ticked you off, totally showed you how invalid their authority, their position was. Think about that person and think about the attitudes and the words that flowed through your heart and mind as you thought about that person. My guess is, and if you're seriously offended or annoyed enough, you did not think of that person as a person. I know I don't. When I saw, I'll be honest with you, when, when certain people rub me the wrong way, I can't maintain my hatred towards them, my disdain of them, while continuing to see them as a human being. What's required is for me to reduce them to the thing that they stand for, the thing they just did, the last decision, the last act. Their guilt stands in front of them as the only thing I see. And when I can see that they are wrong, you are like you, you know, let's, let's just put it this way. There's youth in this room. Maybe you have a teacher, a parent, a coach, someone in authority who just rubs you the wrong way. Maybe if you're an adult, you have a neighbor. I heard some horrific stories from a friend recently about a neighbor, just the neighbor from the pits of you know where. And just, you know, like, it's so hard for me to think of this neighbor of mine as a human being. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a coworker, and the truth is, whether it's validated or not, the truth of what they did might actually be accurate, but as you think about that person, there's this dehumanizing effect, and that's how we maintain the way we treat one another poorly, is that we cannot maintain this idea, you're a person, I have to turn you into something else, something safe for me to abuse and disrespect. I'll never forget meeting two pastors when I was teaching at a pastor's conference in Uganda. These pastors were from Rwanda, and they had journeyed there by bus, by hitchhiking, by foot. They had journeyed for several days to get to this conference. And when I noticed that they were from Rwanda, this this Ugandan um, pastor's conference drew participants from five nations nearby. I, of course, perked right up, and I said, I want to learn from you. I, I need to ask you some questions. They looked like they were friends at first, and they were. They were very close. They almost appeared like brothers. But I found out that the two of them had been involved in unspeakable acts of violence towards one another's families. Acts of violence that led to the murder of one another's family members. And I couldn't compute how it is that these two guys look like friends now. And they said, this is the miracle of the gospel, is that... in spite of everything we had done to each other, 
and all that we had taken from one another, somehow by the grace of God, through the gospel, we have become brothers. We cannot erase the history of what passed between us and our families. But somehow we became brothers through it all. And I asked them a question that I felt I needed to understand. How is it in the midst of all that crazy violence that two men who live next door to each other, I mean neighbors, how can you raise machetes and do violence against people you've lived next door to for years? I've got a couple neighbors that um, I'm used to seeing every time we're out clearing the, the leaves from our yard. I can't picture any scenario in which I grab a machete and go, come here. And just hacking away. I, I can't picture. How does that happen in, in the real world? Just because it's Africa doesn't mean they're not people. Like, these are normal human beings, neighbors. They live with each other. How can you get to that place? And he said, that's what we all wondered when the craziness subsided and we were left with what we had done to each other. How did it start? And here's what they said. It marked me forever. They said, it all began with a word. And that word was Cockroach. Once we began to tell each other, you are nothing but a cockroach because of who you are, it began to dehumanize and objectify that person. And you cannot raise a machete to your neighbor, but you can raise it to a cockroach. The moment you strip another person of their humanness, you can do unspeakable things. You know, we just came back from D.C. and we, we visited the Holocaust Museum. And the whole time I'm walking through, I'm looking at these depictions of horrible violence, racism, genocide. And I'm thinking, how does this happen in any country? And it all begins with turning people into something less than people. And you know what? Everybody who does that, I don't care who they are. They believe in their hearts that those other people deserve to be treated this way. I know some of you may see someone with a Make America Great Again hat and think, no, not those people. I'm not telling you where my politics are. I'm just telling you we have these triggers, rainbow flags. Red Trump hats. Packers jerseys, I don't know what it is, but we have these triggers that we see and we go, no, you are not my friend, you are my enemy. In fact, you are a cockroach. No one deserving of human dignity could stand for what you stand for, believe what you believe. And every time we see these atrocities happen in history, it began with that simple thing, you deserve to be dehumanized. What you stand for, what you've done, what you've said is not worthy of fellow human dignity. It's easy to hear a sermon on behalf of others and think, yeah, they need to hear this, but I want you to hear these words for you because we do this to other people all the time. That guy's worthless. He's garbage. You're trash, dude. And we have these attitudes towards other human beings that have huge consequences. And you'll see that a day is coming in America where unthinkable things will happen among our own countrymen, because that attitude is not being challenged enough today. That's not the whole point of the message, which I couldn't pass that chance up to say, this dehumanizing is where all the other atrocities arise from. And we are sensitive to it in some cases, and totally blind to it in others. But there's another huge problem to the way all this unfolded. And that was that... uh, 
It takes two to tango, man. You can't be caught in the act of adultery and just have one person dragged into court. So we need to say out loud, and everyone's thinking, where the heck is the man? Listen, they're making a big deal out of the fact that they caught her literally in the act, which means they caught her, but they saw him for sure. And maybe she was having an affair with Usain Bolt, and this guy took off, but we know your name, we know your face, buddy. We know at least where we found you guys. And the, the offense of it is, why is only this woman getting dragged in? Why are they turning adultery into a one-person crime? It is a crime. It's not just a sin. It is a crime to take something as sacred as marriage and mess around with it like it's a toy. It's not our right to do. It isn't a freedom we should be given to mess with something that's sacred. But why was only one person thrown in front of Jesus and used in this way? Why wasn't the man brought in? It doesn't say. I have my theories. One of them is maybe it's the good old boys club, that offensive wink and a nod network that exists all over the world. Hey, I'm going to give you a pass, buddy. That's messed up. We're going to take her in, but just stop doing this. Get scarce leave. Because maybe someday I'm going to be the one in the hot seat and I'm going to need you to give me a wink and a nod and give me a pass. I'm convinced one of the reasons more and more pastors are becoming very soft on this issue of porn is because they have an issue themselves. Let's be honest. Everybody struggles. What they're really saying is, I struggle too. So I don't want to make a big deal out of this because it affects all of us. Maybe it was because she was powerless. She was an easy target. It was easier to bring her in and abuse her than to abuse a man. And look at the offensive way that these teachers of the law misquote scripture. I don't know what I just did there. Sorry. Did I uh, turn something off? Look at how they say it. In the law, listen to this, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, if they weren't teachers of the law, I'd give them a pass. But that's pretty jacked up because this is what the law actually says. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. God shows no bias in the way he administers justice, but these accusers did. They brought in a woman because she was powerless to speak up for herself. And they threw her like a human prop in front of this teacher of the law, this Jesus, and they used her to make a political point. This wasn't about the sanctity of marriage. It wasn't about morality. It was about something else altogether. And if you study the history, I I was so discouraged. I I googled um, absurd sexist laws. Don't do it. You're just going to get mad. I could not believe the laws that are still in the books in so many places. And some of the offensive things that were written into the laws of the land that marginalized women through history. And when we see things like this, the marginalization of a group of people, the stepping upon, 
the dehumanizing of anyone, we as followers of Jesus are right to become indignant. We should speak up. We should lend our voice to those who don't have a voice. If we just sit by and watch it, we're as guilty as everybody else. And when we see it, it is right for us not to be idle and silent and passive. We have to say and do what we, what we can. But also, I want to say this. I hope that it will be said of me and every man in this room that when all is said and done at the end of our lives, it could be truly said of us, we treated women with honor and with respect. I hope that's going to be more and more true of our church as the years go by, that it will be true of each of us. And I know it's not just women we need to be focused on. There are so many people in so many groups that don't have a place in our society because they've been labeled a certain way. And when we see that, it reflects the heart of Jesus not to just let it happen. Now, these men, it's very clear, had no intention of making a statement about morality or marriage. That wasn't what this was about. It was really a test. It was a test designed to set a trap for Jesus so that they could accuse Jesus along the lines of their political agenda. It was actually a really ingenious trap because it was like him walking on this narrow ravine and there was a sharp drop-off on either side. Neither choice they presented him was really good. On the one side was a choice to say, well, and listen, here's how they said it. What do you think? Here's what the law says. Give us your ruling. And he was stuck because on the one hand, if he said, well, I deny the law of Moses, I don't think she should be stoned, then he would be discredited and labeled as an enemy of Judaism. Done. Game over. Why should anyone listen to a guy who says the law of Moses has no bearing on real life? It'd be like a pastor who goes, well, I know the Bible says it, but, you know, so what? The Bible. If anyone who puts air quotes around the Bible should be, have the mic taken away from them, <laughs> should be kicked unceremoniously off the pulpit and kicked out of the church. If I ever treat the Bible with air quotes, fire me and stop being my friend. So that's the one unfavorable choice, is I could say, well, I know what the law of Moses says, but forget it. The other unfavorable choice was to uphold the law of Moses and go, let's go out and kill her right now. Because he had been giving a message all through his ministry of compassion, of grace, of mercy, of love, of salvation. Not only that, by the time of Jesus... Stoning as, an, as a penalty for adultery was really, really unpopular and very rarely enforced. I know we think back in those days, everyone was getting rocks thrown at them. There were killings everywhere. It wasn't the case. The truth was it was really, really rare for anyone who committed adultery to be actually killed this way. And it was a very unpopular thing in, in the Judaism of Jesus' day, as it probably would be today. Like It was just a penalty too harsh for the crime. And so popular opinion would have immediately turned against Jesus if he upheld it and voted to bring the woman right outside the temple and kill her on the spot. Not only that, it was designed to put him in trouble with the Roman authorities because at the time, only the Roman governor had the authority to pass a sentence of death on anyone. So by him upholding the law, he would have become an enemy of the, of the Roman Empire as well as the people. 
So do you see the trap they designed for him? He can say, yes, let's, let's do it, and he's in trouble. Or he could say, no, let's not do it, and he's in trouble. And they are just absolutely convinced they've got him impaled on the horns of a dilemma here. You know, as a pastor, I get asked questions like this too. And I say question in air quotes because they have the form of a question, but not the spirit of a question. And can I just tell you, this is not my first rodeo. I know the difference between a question that's an invitation into the open space of dialogue and the exchange of ideas and the the kind of question that's really not a question but a trap. A, A trap designed to back me into a corner so I could be labeled, accused, rejected, and dismissed right away. So I get questions like this. So what is your view on blankety-blank? What, what do you think about this? Do you really believe that Gandhi's in hell? What about this? What about that? And listen, I'm not saying that the questions are not worth discussing. The questions are excellent. I would love to discuss that question, but I don't want to discuss it when it's asked by a person who's not asking a question but really setting a trap. I'm sick of that. And it's everywhere. There's so many people who act like they want to have a conversation, but they don't. They're not interested in any conversation. They're interested in figuring out which label to put on you so they could either decide to uphold you or reject you right away. There are these polarizing things that you would destroy a party if you go, hey, everyone, we're having such a good time. Can I just ask Trump, no Trump? <laughs> right? Politics really. Uh, what do you think about this whole battle over, uh, over gender-neutral bathrooms in high schools? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a great party. Awesome. Thank you. And if we're going to have a real conversation about it, I think it would be one of the most enriching things to get into. To really ask each other, what do you believe and why? How did you arrive at that? What do you think God says about it? Let's struggle through it together. I'm not happy about what God said about it, but i got to deal with that. That's a real conversation, and it refines our convictions and helps us understand each other. It will work towards solutions, but instead, today, all people want to do is out one another. Larry King asking Joel Osteen, and by the way, Joel Osteen failed that test for sure, but still, it wasn't a fair test. On public television, so are you saying I'm going to go to hell? What is that? Is that a real question, Larry? Do you want to know if that's a problem, how you can get out? Or are you trying to out this man on television to discredit him? That's the kind of test these guys set up. If you look at the Greek at the end of verse 5, when they ask, hey, what do you say? It's a very aggressive language in the Greek. It's meant to say, let's see now. The hook is baited. Let's see. And he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. So that's the test. But Jesus is smarter than these fools. And I love his response. His response is no response. They go, so what do you say? I mean, they brought this, this woman, a human prop. What do you say about this? There's, it's a black and white issue. There is no mystery what's going on. Anyone would give one answer or the other. This is not one of those little gray things. And yet Jesus goes, I'm not even going to play your game. And he just stoops down. And he starts writing. What is this guy? Did he get knocked on the head? 
He's playing hangman all by himself. He's doing tic-tac-toe. We asked him a serious question, and he's dodging us. And smelling blood in the water, it says they pressed him even harder. Oh, he's losing. He's got nothing to say. Look at this guy. And they're going after him hard. It's now turned into all caps, right? Flame you, boy. And all of a sudden, Jesus, he can't take it. He goes, you idiots. And he stands up. And he's not dodging the question, but he just says this one thing. Great idea, boys. Whichever one of you has no sin, you pick up the first one. Let's go kill her. Whoever, just one sentence, but it does everything. And then it says he resumes his writing. No answer to their question. He won't even bite. But he just goes, all right, let's kill her then. Who wants to be the first one to throw a stone? Whoever's without sin, you get up there and do it. And then he goes back to writing. <laughs> I love Jesus. He's awesome. I learned so much from him. It's why I don't engage on Facebook comments anymore. <laughs> I've learned. It's so stupid. There's no real dialogue happening on the internet anymore. That's dead. It's done. Why was Jesus writing again? He was giving them time to chew on what he just said. He was exposing their hypocrisy. And here's one way you can define hypocrisy. It's selective outrage. That's what hypocrisy is. Selective outrage. I am so outraged at you. My stuff, what about you? Yeah, I got stuff. I got reasons, all right? But you, I am outraged at you. You suck I just have struggles. You are a horrible human being. Selective outrage. That's what hypocrisy is. That's what self-righteousness looks like. It's condemning the sin of another as though your sins don't count because you have extenuating circumstances. You have a troubled childhood. Your mom didn't hug you or whatever, and that's why I do everything I do. What's your excuse, you cockroach? You're a mess. You're worthless. You're trash. How can you act this way? Stand for those things. Believe that. Vote this way. How can you? I am outraged at you, but my stuff, I got my reasons. That is the definition of hypocrisy. That doesn't mean you are equally guilty as everybody else. That's not what we're saying at all. But what he was saying is, you're so outraged at this woman And yes, she must give an account for what she's done. But is it to you that she owes an answer? Who are you to be the ones demanding justice in her life? I love this little detail. Okay, I'm I'm sorry, I missed the slide. In verse 9, it says, And those who heard began to go away. The older ones first. Older people. Let's fist bump each other. We don't get a really uh, good rep in, in our culture today. There's a lot of ageism going on. But it's the older guys who realize what Jesus just did. The younger guys are like, we almost had him, guys. Come on, she cleared these guilty. Let's get him. And the older guys like, shut up, dude. Let's go. We lost. See, when I was younger... It was much easier to be self-righteous. I really thought everyone else was terrible, and I was pretty awesome. I'm looking at you guys, because I was you once. 
If you're under 25, you think you're awesome and everyone else sucks. You do. You genuinely believe that. It's not like I'm just saying that. You actually believe that about the world. I did. And when I was younger, it was easy to maintain the illusion because I hadn't lived long enough to see how much I also suck. I'm terrible. As I've gotten older, the one thing that's harder to hang on to is the illusion of my own goodness. I've seen enough to know. I don't even get why I'm allowed to preach here, honestly. Please don't fire me, but I'm saying I feel like I'm getting away with something every Sunday. I don't know why I get to be the one standing up here. The older I get, the more I realize I'm not as good as I think I am. And as Jesus points the finger back at them and says, yes, she did wrong, but look at your own heart. He's not saying you have to be perfect to raise an issue, to call someone out. He's not saying that. But he's saying, look at your spirit, your heart, the way you've done all this. Look at what is in you for a minute. The blindness it takes to act the way these men had acted. And then finally, it's just them. Everyone else leaves. And for the first time in the story is Jesus and this woman. And he talks to her directly for the first time. And the word woman, when we say woman, usually it's kind of disrespectful. Woman! Woman! But he says it in the most respectful way. He says, woman. Not whore. Not slut. Not any of the words that people want to use. But he says, woman. Where is everybody? Where are those men who threw you into the middle of this circle, wanted to shame you, accuse you, condemn you? Where are they? And she says, they're gone. They're not here. And he says words that I think bless some and really tick off others. He says to her, then I don't condemn you either. And there are those in the church who hear that and go, what was that, Jesus? Why does she get a pass? She did it. She's guilty. Why does she just get a pass? But you see, she doesn't get a pass. He's not saying, I'm going to close my eyes and pretend you didn't just commit adultery. What he says, if you read it, is I don't condemn you. Jesus is not soft on sin. He's soft on condemnation. There is a difference for those of us who don't get that. To be gracious and uncondemning is not to ignore the reality that people do wrong. And so do you and so do I. Jesus is never soft on sin. He calls out, you would not believe how many times, even through the Gospel of John, he delivers a person, then he goes, now stop it. Stop the sinning. Cut it out. Be different. Change. He doesn't let anyone off the hook, but he always does it without condemnation. I think we have to acknowledge and own up to the fact that the church, and by that it's us, all of us, collectively and historically, have approached the world largely with a voice of condemnation. It's right for us to raise the alarm and make a stand for what we believe is right and what is wrong. That's not a problem. But too often, the first words the people out there have heard from those of us in here is, you are wrong, stop it. 
Stop sinning should not be the first word they hear. What, what, what the world hears from us too often is, stop sinning and then we'll stop condemning you. Stop sinning and then we'll stop condemning you. We say to our kids, cut it out and then I won't, we, won't, we won't have a problem. I'll stop hating you and disrespecting you and looking down on you if you stop acting like that. You know what Jesus says to her? Look at my face. I don't condemn you. So stop sinning. We say stop sinning so I can stop condemning you. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. So stop sinning. The person you're hurting most is God and then you are hurting yourself with your sin. It's not loving to tell a person who's sinning act like they'll never have to give account to God. You see, he rescued her from the self-righteous abuse of these men. But that didn't erase her sin. The sins of others don't magically erase your sins. And Jesus delivered her from their sin, but he was now about to deliver her from her sin too. And that had to be done. That's the part that most people don't seem to get anymore. It's not loving to tell a person just because you were marginalized, abused, you've done nothing wrong. We've all done something wrong. All of us will have to give an account to our God, our maker. Don't you dare tell people that just because someone beat them up, bullied them, pushed them around, they will never have to answer even to God. Yes, they will. And they'll be horribly surprised when they find out the truth. But what they need to hear from us is not first, you are wrong. But in front of Jesus is the safest place to be wrong. Because in that place, there is no condemnation. And in that place, people get to turn around. They get to be different and start over. That's the most loving message we bring to the world. Look at Romans 2.4. I love the way the New Living Translation renders this verse. I think it's the best rendering. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? We should never be soft on sin. The world doesn't know the difference between sin and sacredness. We've learned that from the word. We shouldn't be soft on sin, but we should be soft on condemnation. No one wants to hear a lesson about right and wrong from someone who condemns them. They need to hear what Jesus is saying. Neither do I condemn you. Now stop destroying yourself. Luke 7, I'll close with this, records the story of another woman who had some serious issues going on in her life. She was a woman who sinned a lot, and very publicly. But she heard about this man, Jesus, and she made a huge risk. Jesus was the honored dinner guest in the home of a Pharisee. That's not a place where a shady lady wants to be found. But she was so drawn to his compassion and his non-condemnation that she broke into that house, crashed the party, and made a spectacle of herself in front of everyone. She took an expensive jar, probably purchased with ill-gotten gain, and shattered it on the floor 
took out the expensive perfume and began to anoint Jesus and wash his feet with her tears. Everyone at the party was aghast. How can you let her even touch you if you knew what kind of woman this was? She wouldn't even be allowed to touch your flesh. And Jesus then says of this woman, I tell you, her sins, I love this, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Let me read that again. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. You want to know how you can tell the difference between self-righteousness and those who have been made righteous by Jesus? You want to know how to find that difference in you? One way is to find the extent to which you worship and love and adore Jesus. I know people who are militantly agitated when others are mistreated. Good. We should never lose that. That's a courage that comes from the Holy Spirit. And yet the same person cannot worship God. Will not sing to Him. Will not yield to Him. Will not sacrifice for Him in ways that they don't decide. And what Jesus is saying is, you want to know the difference between self-righteousness and being made righteous, you'll see it in the extent to which you worship Him. The person who knows that they are as worthy of condemnation as anyone else, but in Jesus has found forgiveness, that person will worship Jesus with gratitude. And here's one thing I found that you will find too. When you worship Jesus because you were forgiven much, it's very hard to stand in condemnation over other people. It's very hard to look down your nose at others when you're looking up to Jesus from the ground. I'm so grateful that at the end of the story, Jesus didn't just say to the woman, wow, that was close. What a bunch of jerks. Go home. I'm so glad he didn't do that. Because he wasn't just saving her from men. He was saving her from herself and from eternal condemnation. This would have been a beautiful story if Jesus was just a guy who spoke up for a powerless woman. It still would have been a beautiful story. But it's an amazing story because it was a man who happened to be God. And he spoke up for this woman and it saved her. It actually saved her. It made her different. She will struggle like we all do for the rest of her life. But that moment, when it all started, would be the moment she would return to again and again as a place where her broken soul was made whole again. What about us?
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.